Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name is Steve and I'm here with co-host Ben. Hello, Ben. Uh, hi there, Steve. How are you? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't, I haven't written that. Ha- oh, shut up, Steve. We are joined by Dave Guttridge for episode 14 for a truly fascinating insight into where a love of music and the embracing of creative ideas can lead. We linked to Dave following a Facebook post in which he'd posted a photo of a demo cassette sleeve. Little did we realise, Ben, that this was just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, yeah. Where do you start with Dave? His story is long and detailed and hugely fascinating, and it's going to take twists and turns that you will not be able to predict. It was, it was a really inspiring and brilliant conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, it was amazing. Dave was just brilliant. And I feel like we could have spoken with him for like another two hours or something and continued to discover dozens of projects and experiences from throughout his life. There was so much stuff that he, that we touched on, uh, things that he'd done, um, whether that uh, things that he was interested in, and we could have delved far, far deeper. It just felt that the, the conversation flowed really naturally from from one course to another and uh, as people will hear it kind of revolves around certain themes and comes back to them and it's just it's a very satisfying listen it is it was a smorgasbord wasn't it it was, <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've, I've taken so much from the from this conversation with david not least a sort of sense of renewed positivity towards following your ideas is it has it landed with you in a similar way it has, and I think um, we have mentioned the concept of creative communities, and it is something that keeps cropping up and returning throughout some of the more recent conversations that we've had with people. And it certainly was inspiring listening to Dave. You know, I think it left me feeling that we really need, you know, instigators, innovators, people who are going to make connections and then open these up to other people. And, uh, and Dave kind of is definitely one of those pivotal people who is prepared to take risks and entertain new ideas and new ways of doing things, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's such an advocate for just going for it. Um, yeah, I, I love that about him. And sort of much like the episode with Susie, it feels it feels wrong to trail this too much because Dave's achievements and the way they connect are something of a gift to listen to don't you think i think i mean definitely um the similarity between dave and susie in terms of their their attitude and the confidence with which they present themselves was really striking and it feels feels like a really good match to have these episodes sitting back to back um both for us in terms of bringing their stories to um to other people and and for the listener coming to these two stories it's a masterstroke of programming, and I think we're geniuses. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it just, you know, it's a very carefully orchestrated thing, obviously. Of course, yeah. <laughs> of course. Well, um, our thanks to Dave for coming on the show and being such a generous and engaging guest. It's a brilliant listen. However, I do want to throw in a little apology of my own here, because just with regard to the the quality of sound on my mic i'm still wrestling with my setup and uh yeah so sorry for the wavering quality here i will do better i am doing better right now i've got a <laughs> whole new whole new thing and sound card and everything well, well, um so apologies for the uh slightly shitty sound on uh, on on this episode well there's another thing that dave brought he gave us a lesson in uh a, a, in mic technique and and setup didn't he, he really oh my god <laughs> consummate professional yeah the one week when you don't want your mic to sound a bit crap, <laughs> he set the he set the bar so high. Yeah, the, the 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 Guttridge standard of mic quality is what we're all aiming for. As you will find out in uh, episode fourteen of Songs from a Padded Envelope. My name's Dave Guttridge. I'm a musician, photographer, filmmaker all sorts of jack of all trades. And uh, the song you're going to be hearing is a song by a band called Falling Men from 1981. And the song is called Denigration of Beauty. Well, you say it dates, the Falling Men demo dates back to 1981. Is that your first band? 
it's my second band, but the first that ever got recorded. Okay, so th- tell us, tell us how you came, what the journey was to get to that point of recording this demo. How far back do you want to go? Oh, as far back <laughs> as you like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, okay. Uh, let's go back to the seventies. Right. As a as a spotty youth, I was uh, listening to an awful lot of progressive rock and uh being a sort of 13 year old in the mid 70s you were basically destined to go down the prog route um luckily uh, a couple of things happened and one was that I started listening to the John Peel show under my covers and he introduced me to all sorts of strange stuff and he was still playing a lot of prog at the time um however he also started playing some slightly different stuff which caught my ears which was things like Dr Feelgood um stuff stuff basically that stripped stuff down and made rock and roll a little bit more basic and I realized that I was of the generation that hadn't grown up listening to basic rock and roll um and that's what it was kind of pulling me back to so um which is a long way round of saying I, I kind of went out of the progressive kind of part of the field and started exploring slightly more left field stuff. And from there, a friend of mine and myself decided that along with a lot of other people at the time in the slightly later seventies, that nest, you know, we weren't necessarily um, having to be incredibly technically proficient before we actually put a band together so me and my mate Roger and uh, it was just us two at the time started a band called the Stoats Uh, we then brought a drummer in and the rest you know really rolled on from there because the the Stoats lasted as long as they needed to which was basically a few months almost and uh in that time, we pulled on another guitarist for our first gig. He only lasted the one gig, but then he he turned up again in the next band that we formed. So <laughs> he didn't hold a grudge. Um, yeah, and the next band was Falling Men, who you're going to hear at the end of the show. And where's all this taking place? This is all taking place in Norwich, in East Anglia. I was going to say Norwich is in an unusual geographical location, and it's not on the way to anywhere, unless you're going to Great Yarmouth. And people do go to Great Yarmouth, obviously. Uh, but for that reason, it, it kind of, it's always had this knack of kind of entertaining itself and not expecting entertainment to come from elsewhere. Uh, we were lucky in that we did have a regular gig in Norwich. There was a place called St Andrew's Hall, which put on quite big names. And we had the university as well, which obviously was on the gig circuit. But uh, apart from that, you had to go out on the train to West Runton Pavilion to go and see really, you know, interesting lineups. And you could have gone out there and seen the Sex Pistols playing with a prog rock band called Grendel on the same bill. Um, Yeah. So do you think the isolation of Norwich does something special to the music that has come out of that city then? I think it certainly had a bearing on on how music develops there because I, I hate to use this phrase about Norwich because, because it's almost become a, a standing joke around the rest of the country, but it's very incestuous. Lots, lots of people um, join each other's bands and it kind of cross pollinates. Um, even, even if you're playing different types of music, you might end up, on the same bill or certain, you know, maybe even in the same lineup. So when you um, moved into uh, Falling Men, how long was it before you found yourself in a recording studio? I, I guess it wasn't that long, except that we'd, we'd kind of tried to do it ourselves. And at, at the house where we used to rehearse, um, because we didn't know about such things as re- rehearsal studios in those days, we used to rehearse in the front room of a terraced house much to the neighbor's joy every week, I guess. And Andy, our guitarist, who'd returned having played with the, one gig with the Stoats, he'd got this incredible old ferrograph recording deck 
um, which he started trying to record us on um, with varying degrees of success. We've still got some of those recordings and they, they, they sound, you know, of their time and of, you know, you know, obviously made with the bare minimum of equipment. We didn't know about, you know, obviously we couldn't close mic things and couldn't put the drummer in a different room because we didn't have long enough leads. So it, yeah, so we tried to do it ourselves, and then eventually we just thought, if we're going to record this music, we need to go into a studio, and there seemed to be only one studio in Norwich. <laughs> now, where, where's that? Where, where was that? It was just outside in a in a funny little drive-through strip of land called Easton, and uh, we we knew a couple of people. Basically, it's. A band in Norwich had done this amazing thing of making their own single, and it was kind of the talk of Norwich. And there's a band called Silent Silent Noise, and I think I'm right in saying that they recorded this at the same studio. And so everyone saw the name of the studio on the back of the sleeve and thought that's the place to go and record your records. So um, off we went, and it was basically just a it was a house. And the bottom two floors of the house had been converted into a control room and a live room. And that was it. That's fantastic. Um, did you, had you done much preparation before you went in to, to record? Did you know what you were <laughs> going to be faced with? Absolutely not. We were, it, it, it felt, on one hand, it felt like the most incredible technological amazing place that we'd ever seen because there were all these racks of equipment and things flashing and um great big microphones um but on the like looking at it now i'm looking at pictures of it as we speak because i've got my scrapbook next to me and it is just a room in a terror you know in a in a little house um, with some microphone stands and a mixing desk in, in another room yeah so are you feeling daunted are you feeling excited how do you how are you feeling as you approach that session i i honestly can't remember any like nervousness or anything and and in fact we we were a little bit um pretentious in in what we were trying to do because we we were doing stuff like recording a song and live mixing flanging on the vocals as it was recorded and you couldn't go back from that you know that was what we'd end up with because you could you know we'd done it on the master <laughs> vocal take so uh, we had to be happy with it but um yeah so where, we did, would... where did that idea come from uh, i don't know i think we're probably listening to us running through the song and thinking oh it sounds a bit sounds a bit ordinary that vocal <laughs> what what happens if you press this button and then we, and then what happens if you turn this knob while he's singing and uh yeah so that's that's what we ended up with that's brilliant. um and with it with a very accommodating <laughs> studio engineer to allow you to try that stuff out well <laughs> I, to be honest i think dave the guy who ran the studio um I'm just checking that I've got his name right. Yeah, Dave. Dave is the guy who ran the studio. I don't think he'd been doing it very long. And so he was probably learning on the job as much as we were. Uh, luckily, I mean, he he let us just have free reign of the place and sat back and counted his incredible wealth. <laughs> um, I, I should know, I, I should tell you, I mean, you may have already seen this, uh, Steve and Ben, but um, I wrote down how much the session cost. And for nine hours of studio time, the cost was 54 pounds. That's wonderful. Come on. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so g going back a little bit, Dave, when you, when you come in across new music on, um, on John Peel, um, what is it that is exciting you? Um, what is it that's outside of the blog, this new music? What is it that's influencing the Stoats and then falling men from there? It is that kind of stuff that pushes the boundaries a little bit. I mean, prog for all its technical ability and everything and complication 
it seemed at the same time an incredibly safe place because a prog band was a prog band was a prog band in my ears. I liked some of them, but to be honest, once I'd heard about three or four albums by, I don't know, ELP or something, you kind of knew what to expect on the next one and you weren't usually disappointed. So from there, it, it, it became something along the lines of you wanted to hear something that challenged you a little bit more, whether it was something you weren't quite prepared for in terms of like the sonic um, qualities of it, or whether it was the songwriting not adhering to the, the rules as much. Um, I mean, with things like the Feel Goods and Eddie and the Hot Rods and those early kind of pub rock stroke punk bands, um, it was the complete opposite. It was it was how little can you do it with? You know, you can just do it with guitar, bass and drums playing essentially 12-bar blues, but still make it sound exciting. So were you drawing drawing that stuff into when you were sitting down and, and writing with Falling Men and, and working up your songs? You know, was there much of a a purpose to that or you know a, a, did you have much of an agenda for your songwriting and did we want to be like this or we was it more, more free-flowing than that no there were definite uh we wore our influences on our sleeves very much um by then things had kind of moved on a little bit with with music we we'd gone past the first stages of punk and we'd gone into what people now talk of as either new wave or post-punk and the stuff we were listening to that we were getting quite hot under the collar about were things like bands like Magazine um, and Talking Heads and people who were just doing slightly off-kilter stuff, um, lyrically and musically. Uh, I mean, I was, I was very taken, as a bass player, I was really, really interested in bands that had a bass player that stood out. And that went from way back with... Jean-Jacques Burnell in The Stranglers um, through Tina Weymouth uh, with Talking Heads because, again, she did so much with so little. She would play so few notes, but it would be so beautifully timed and lock in with the music and propel the music. Um, but my, my big squeeze at the time was uh, Barry Adamson, who played for Magazine. And his bass playing was, it was like another lead instrument in some of the mm, uh, songs. Completely. Um, and also I was really, really taken with his bass sound and there was a lot of flanging going on. <laughs> uh, flanging was everywhere in the, in the early eighties. And what about the live experience with, with Falling Men? Where, well, you've done, you've made your demo. Um, what's the live experience like for the band? Usually shockingly awful. <laughs> um, our, our ambitions were were very rarely realised live. Um, only towards the very end did we actually manage to, I think, put across what we wanted to live. Um, I mean, in the early days, I remember actually doing a gig in Thetford in Norfolk to, I think, literally three people, um, including the sound man. And the sound man was trying to mix us through what looked like a pair of hi-fi speakers that someone had brought in. Um, so, you know, our, uh, yeah, we had lofty ambitions live, um, but towards the end, we actually managed to kind of almost bring it off. Were you happy with the demo? Just, just thinking back to that recording, were you happy with it when you, when you, come away from the studio after those nine hours for 54 pounds or whatever it was. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was delighted. Yeah. We, we had five tracks, wow. which we did in that time. Yeah. Um, that's recorded and mixed and mastered, you know, wow. um, yeah, <laughs> we, we, I think, yeah, looking at it, we had to, um, uh, yeah, extra time for remixing. I've got a note as was twelve pounds. So uh, <laughs> I think we went. We, yeah, you, we, you, really we went pushed, you pushed the bow out there. Yeah, yeah, it was worth it. Yeah, yeah. But actually, I mean, the the songs sound like they were recorded in a a small, you know, not particularly brilliant studio. But at the same time, I mean, they sound of of 
their time and I'm actually quite happy with the way they sound still having listened back to them um I think they I mean, sound they sound like you hit the mark of what you're after very much from the kind of those specific influences that you're talking about you can hear that Definitely. yeah I mean the, the, there's even like there's a I, the bass part was was complete you know I was I was just ripping off either Barry Adamson um who, who else was would play like that I, I really don't know um maybe the guy from Duran Duran even oh, yeah but that that was yeah, but this was 81. I hadn't even heard Duran Duran. What am I saying? Maybe. Yay. <laughs> Did you actually invent Duran Duran? Is that, are you behind oh, the band? Don't, don't let that be my legacy. No. <laughs> much, much as I love them. But. He's a remarkable bass player. I mean, really, really oh, something yeah. else. And he learned to play bass out of necessity, didn't he? Because he couldn't play when they first came together. Um, it yeah. Was kind of... Yeah. Same with same with Barry Adamson. He was he was a bass player who who had never picked up a bass before. Howard Devoto said, "You'd be right for this band," which is what a great attitude. Yeah, I love that. Um, so did did the uh, did the Falling Men demo find its way to um, any labels, or did you did you put it in a padded envelope and send it out to anybody? Oh no, we did better than that. We re we released it as a cassette album. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. So one side of the cassette album was the five tracks we did um, at White House Sound. And the other side we recorded, I'm doing inverted commas here, live uh, in a back room of a pub in Norwich um, because we couldn't afford any more expensive studio time. So we just set up, you know, a two track machine and recorded us playing live. Um, so, yeah, that that cassette then went out. We didn't really know much about distribution in those days. Um, not many people did. Um, we'd kind of heard of Rough Trade and places like that, but they were so far off our radar in Norwich. So we basically just had a load of cassettes duplicated. We drew and uh, printed kind of, uh, it was like a, a fanzine, a square fanzine, which fitted into a seven-inch single sleeve and we put that and the cassette into a sleeve and then took them down to the HMV shop and uh, said, can you sell these for us? And amazingly, you know, they and Bax Records in Norwich, which was the, the main independent shop, um, sold quite a few of them. I, I hate to think how many are still out there, but I think we, we, kind of, we maybe sold, I don't know, getting on for 100. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you still have one of these one of the cassettes dave somewhere i think i do yeah i've definitely got the sleeve and i've definitely got the the fanzine because the fanzine then had a life of its own after that after that release and what was the name of your fanzine it was called is it fish um so that piece of paper that went in with the cassette was issue effectively issue one um i then got a job which uh, part of my job involved running a printing press um this was in at cambridge university in one of their departments so after hours i used to sneak back into work and print off uh, a fanzine um mainly because at the time things started happening in norwich musically that uh, it, it, at the time the um the music press was very geographically based they would kind of be looking around for the next city that would kind of provide them with a a sort of stamping ground uh, for what was going to happen so um just after we recorded this some some bands started forming at the university and a buzz started to develop around norwich and this kind of grew and grew and reach the ears of John Peel. Um, our ambition was kind of the limit of our ambition was was really just to either be played by Peel once or you know maybe do a session for him in the dim and distant future. Um, neither of which happened with this band but uh, a lot of other things kind of developed from this little ripple going out through Norwich. 
it was one of the things that, that Steve and I were talking about just before you came on the call today about um, in reference to Peel and that and how, uh, you know, for us growing up in playing similar styles of music, you know, so for want of a better word, some sort of alternative form of music that a John Peel session was very much on the tick list of the things, the immediate things that you aspire to. So you, so you can't send a copy of the, of the, the cassette album off to him, did you? Yeah, yeah. It disappeared without a trace. <laughs> <laughs> um, he did turn up at one of our gigs. Uh, we, we were playing at the, the Gala Ballroom, which was a legendary venue in Norwich, um, towards the end of our, our stint. And after we played, I walked out into the crowd and I bumped into him. And I said, John, you've come to the gig. And he went, yeah. And I said, what did you think of us? He said, I've just arrived. Oh. and i said oh. did you not see us then he went no oh. so anyway oh. uh, so i you know i took him to the bar and bought him a pint what more could i do so falling men after falling men had uh come to a close did you did you then fall into the next band and and and, and just did it keep going from there because i'm in your biography there's that you sent over there's 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 a fair few bands listed there yeah i think i scratched the surface with the uh biog that i sent you i um Band after band after band just came along, um, a varying degrees of success. Uh, but to be honest, um, after Falling Men, it, it kind of, I kind of went a slightly different way because um, the fanzine and the music that was going on in Norwich kind of grew to have a life of their own, and that kind of occupied me for a little while. So after I. I, I almost stopped playing because I wanted to do the fanzine and I started to send that out and it started to get interest from all over the place. Um, I should also mention that Andy, who was the guitarist who came back to the band, he, he was the guy who used to record us in the front room on the two track. He then set up a little studio in his kitchen and then he moved to another house and set another studio up in his kitchen and eventually he moved into a different house, kept the name The Kitchen, which, he, you know, he kept throughout this recording studio's life. And he started to record all the bands that were around. And he used to uh, release the tracks that he'd recorded, whether it be on his little Walkman that he used to take with, it, with him to all the gigs. Um, he released a, a series of cassettes called Real. R-W-E-L. And one of those cassettes, I think it was number two, um, every band featured on that cassette got a Peel session. Wow. So Peel listened to that cassette and it, it featured people like um, Serious Drinking. I think the Higsons were on it. Uh, there was a band called The Crabs, Popular Voice, and all of these bands suddenly found themselves with peel sessions and being featured in the music press so there was a great scene that had built and developed a real sense of momentum yeah very much so i, re yeah. I mean i remember as you're recounting those um the, the names of those bands i can hear john peel's voice reeling them off at the time <laughs> and the higsons were such an exciting band they were actually and um just as an aside, this this very week, um, a guy's got in touch with me uh, through Facebook. Um, way back in the, again, in the early 80s, there was a series of festivals that were put on called Futurama, and they featured post-punk bands um, like uh, Joy Division, Echo and the Bunnymen, New Order. Um, and he, he put a call out saying, we're going to revive the festival uh, next year. And has anyone got any... Uh, memorabilia and photos from the previous ones and as I said to my wife um, I've finally reached the age where people are going to be interested in all the rubbish I've been keeping for all these years you know it's we're finally coming to the point where I'm, I'm glad I kept those set lists and you know and all those photos did you go to Futurama was it was it centered in Leeds wasn't it one of the uh, the first yeah first couple were in Leeds and then it moved uh, to New Bingley Hall near Stafford which was basically a cattle shed um, and that's the one I went to together with a load of friends from Norwich. 
um it, it was a pretty dreadful festival to be honest by you know looking at what we we had to put we were basically locked in for the day you, you know you once you were in through the doors you were locked in you you brought some cider with you you sat on the floor and you watched the bands as they came and went but, yeah it was the early yeah it wasn't the, the you know it wasn't glamping by any means. <laughs> it's great that they're reviving that i think that, that the time is right for that to make a return <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in the shed. back back to basics back to basic festivals, in a yeah. shed. <laughs> Brilliant. so actually and i should also say i i did end up doing a, a peel session um i actually got to do a peel session not in a band um I ended up doing the introductions to the songs by the Farmers Boys, who were another Norwich band of the time, on one of their sessions. And bless me, I mean, the BBC paid me um, a session fee for doing it, and they paid me a repeat fee when they played it again. And basically oh. what I'd done was just ramble <laughs> drunkenly at the beginning of each song. So where did, you go, where did you go to do that? You went with the band? Yeah, that was made of ale. Yeah, I think, Fantastic. It, I think it was Dale Griffin who uh, from Mott the Hooper who, who uh, produced it. What he thought of my introductions, I have no idea. But uh, Peel was very kind when he played it out and said that I should have my own show. <laughs> That's great. And what... Were these bands, the Farmers Boys, the Higsons, uh, Serious Drinking, were they were they mates by this point? Very much what, so, yeah. Yeah. And what is the what's the sense of the kind of one of the things we've been looking at is this kind of idea of creative community is very much touched upon it with the last conversation we had with uh, with um, around sort of Bristol and stuff. But what do you think about the 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 sort of creative community that's building there at that point in Norwich at that time? Yeah, I. The Norwich community, the, the the musical community, as I say, was very, very incestuous, um, but also very friendly. Um, so a lot of the bands lent members to other bands um, if they needed them. Uh, Terry from the Higsons, who's gone on to have an incredible career playing saxophone and woodwind with all sorts of bands from like Tindersticks, uh, PJ Harvey gallon drunk uh and he you know he's played with the bad seeds and such people in the past so um yeah he he would just be like you know anyone need a saxophone you go to terry you know um we actually had a saxophone player in uh, in falling men um i'm not sure whether it added anything to the sound at all but um he was a really nice bloke <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember where he came from or, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so although there was a kind of two-centre thing going on in Norwich because um, a lot of the bands were made up of people who'd arrived in Norwich to go to university and UEA in Norwich has this strange hold on people in that it's got a really high retention rate of people who stay on after they've finished at UEA and don't ever leave Norwich. Or, or take a long while to go somewhere else. Um, but also there's the kind of city and local uh, kind of scene as well. But the two were never really antagonistic to each other. They were always, you know, um, you would go to UEA and do a gig at the barn in on the UEA village, but equally those bands would then come into Norwich and play at the Gala Ballroom and, you know, uh, it, it it was a really nice friendly time and everyone was at the same party it felt that's great and you're documenting this through your fanzine how long did that run for uh, i did ooh, six issues i think um and basically i didn't i never charged for the thing i i just ran off uh, you know hundreds of copies and then every gig i went to like if i went to a gig in london i just walk up and down the line of people outside and give everyone a copy um which worked really well because um, it, it kind of uh, distributed it better than it would ever have been if I'd charged people to buy it uh, by post. And things happened from that, like um, Cherry Red Records uh, one day just sent me this huge packet full of records and I got in touch with them on their phone and I said, what do you want me to do with all these records? And they said, oh, just have a listen to them if you, if you like any of them. <laughs> just do a review of, of of one of them and so 
I reviewed one of them and it was a band I really liked anyway. I was really pleased. So I wrote a review and blow me, two weeks time, another great big pack of records turned up and this just kept <laughs> happening. And I thought, that <laughs> I can, you know, yeah, music journalism is fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's great. And um, with with um, with your fanzine, is it Fish? Is that what it's called? Is it? Yeah, Fish? yeah. Um, were you giving away music with that as well? Was there was there any cassettes or anything that went with it? No, no. I was. It was strictly a print thing, but it kind of always uh, um, signposted the way that people could find. Things. So um, backs in Norwich set up their own distribution uh, network, um, you know, and they were part of uh, this thing called the Cartel, which was a, a group of similar uh, setups around the country. So there suddenly became a way of nationally distributing a record once you'd made it. It all fits beautifully into the kind of DIY ethic that came from punk, doesn't it? It seems that the stuff you're talking about making your cassette album and people setting up their own distribution networks and that. The 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 impact of punk in terms of that particular thing, not necessarily in the music, but in the the DIY you can do it yourself has been really long lasting, hasn't it? It has and it goes on to this day. I mean, even locally there's a place called Burning Shed Records, who are um an incredibly successful um small distribution and uh release company who who specialise in kind of left field electronica new prog uh, i don't know what you call it really but it's it's kind of obscure music but it's got a really big uh following when you were doing the fanzine you were starting to take photographs as well no i've always done that it's, it was the family trade my dad was uh -huh. a photographer and uh as i grew up i went to art school for a year and realized that I'd, i had no skill in drawing or painting um so i took up a camera and it's never let me down since <laughs> Well, your work is wonderful. I was I was looking at your oh, website you. today, and uh, the photograph you've got of Don Letts on there is just something else. Oh, it's well, incredible. The sure. story is kind of um, as we go on through this story that John Peel kind of drops into it at different points, and the the Don Letts picture is one of the many that I've taken out at Peel Acres in recent years, where we've had visitors who come out. Um, I'm I'm lucky enough to be part of the John Peel archive crew. So uh, we kind of, we set up a website a number of years ago. Um, nothing much has happened in the last few years because uh, for various reasons, mostly financial, um, but we were, we've been granted access to John's collection and we've, we've managed to document quite a bit of it. Um, that, I mean, it's a massive undertaking, but uh, we've had visitors come out there people like Don Letts uh, Joe Boyd the producer um, all manner of people have, have come out and curated a record box which we've filmed them doing and chatted about the music that they found there and it's, it's just been one of the absolute joys of my life to be involved in that I've gone looking for old records that I was on as well and I still haven't found any out there <laughs> It must be such a beautiful thing to to have the opportunity to be involved in that project and to go and to go in there and I'm I'm sure there must be a sense of presence of the of the man there within those within those walls. Yeah, more than you can imagine. Um, the the main room that I use to take uh, pictures in um, because I've been documenting the sleeves and almost more importantly the inner sleeves of uh, the records in this collection where he would. Um, systematically uh, re-time every track because he never trusted the timings on the sleeves. He would then star rate each track. Um, so I've been photographing everything we find inside the records, and there's often letters from the artists in there as well. Uh, the room I use for that is the room that he used to broadcast from, uh, and his mixing desk is still there. The first day I ever went in there and turned the power on to... Uh, plug my lights in his voice came through the speakers and I realized that I turned um, an old DAT machine on in the corner and there was a recording of one of John's shows on that DAT machine oh, wow. and suddenly he was in the room with me it was very very strange but absolutely delightful uh, what happened was uh, John decided he wanted to spend less time in London broadcasting 
from the BBC and more time at home. So they basically built him a studio in his house. Um, it's it's not open to the public, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's still pretty much exactly as it was the day you walked out of it. Plenty of people, I'm sure plenty of people that listening are not going to have an awareness of the significance of, of, of John Peel and what an amazing cultural icon and the kind of the impact and lasting legacy that he's had in terms of bringing music to people's ears. It's just, uh, it's impossible to state how important he was, isn't it? It is, especially these days when there really hasn't been anyone to touch him uh, since he went. Um, partly because he, he kind of, you know, again, he didn't follow rules and he played essentially what he liked. Um, it, it didn't matter what genre it was from. If he liked it, he would play it. Um, that, you know, that worked against him in a lot of ways. But uh, nowadays, people listening to the radio and six music in, in Great Britain is probably the closest we'll get to appeal show. But you'd have to listen to like a couple of weeks of six music's output to hear the the breadth of what John would play on one show. Um, yeah, it, 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 it really, you know, it can't be overstated. The, the stuff that he turned people on to um, right from the early days where he would champion people, people like um, Mark Bolan and T-Rex. And I've even, I've found letters from uh, David Bowie uh, at Peel Acres where Bowie's saying, I think I'm going to give up the mime. I'm I'm not sure it's working so well. Uh, I might just do the music. And you think, you know, yeah, <laughs> good good choice, Dave. Yeah. My my memories are so much of, of listening to PLR. You know, kind of you're in it for the long run listening to him, weren't you? Because I might as as a young teenager, there was so much that I listened to that I had no comprehension or mm. understanding of. And maybe you might come out. Of, of listening to a whole program with like a couple of things that I thought, well, that, that those are for me and loads of other stuff that I had no, no idea about at all. But that, that kind of listening experience is so invaluable, isn't it? Yeah. And it, it's a difficult thing to reproduce these days because music's immediately available um, to anyone, anywhere. Um, in those days you would, you would literally save yourself up all day to listen to Peel um, at 11 o'clock at night because you weren't going to hear it anywhere else and I, I and many other people probably sat with cassette players and recorders trying to catch the song that you'd heard the previous week in case he played it again because you had no idea if it was coming um, and also all the sessions as well trying to record sessions and cut peel off before um, the song started you know <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather have him on there, to be honest. <laughs> well, yes, there is, there is that. for sure, for sure. Yeah, I love the. Um, there's a Mogwai live album. Is it a live album? It's a compilation, perhaps, and it starts with um, John Peel saying, "Ladies and gentlemen, Mogwai," and it's just. I mean, what a lovely thing for them to be able to yeah. put at the beginning yeah. of their record. Yeah, really great. Um, I, I mean, it must be. Uh, how quickly did you become? Um, did you get over the fact that your creative journey had taken you, you know, into John Peel's home and, and having the responsibility of um, the work that you're doing with his ar archive, you know, for having, as you described when we first started speaking, that's where your journey started. Yeah, I still pinch myself and start, I can't quite believe I'm allowed to even, you know, go in in through the record racks and pick stuff out while I'm working there basically Sheila uh, John's wife just said you know while you're in there if you want to put some records on so I'd, I'd go through the card index file find out where something was you can you can find any record in his collection within about 30 seconds because it's so beautifully indexed um yeah and I'd just go and pull a pull an LP out and it might be I don't know, the copy of Tubular Bells that he played in full on his show, which started Virgin Records, you know, massive uh, success story. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, the, the things you find in there are just amazing. And um, like I say, I have looked for stuff. Um, you know, if, if I've got a friend who's in a band, I'll make a point of getting the index card out and then finding the record 
uh, pulling the inner sleeve out and seeing what Peel thought of it, of their record. And thankfully, they're usually quite positive. And you know, once or twice, he'll he'll write, "This is rubbish." <laughs> next <laughs> next to a track. <laughs> I'm not I'm not going to say who that was. <laughs> does it does it tick the dream job box for you in in many ways it does yeah i mean i i'm i pinch myself because i'm so lucky to do the jobs that i do i I, i've never settled to one particular thing for too long but i've done photography for 35 years now i think and um yeah i wouldn't do anything else it's got me into some amazing places but uh, all the other little sidelines, they, they, you know, they're the things that keep things fresh. Like, you know, from the from the fanzine, um, after that, me and a couple of friends thought we're not seeing the bands we want to in Norwich. So let's let's start a club. And so we started a club night in an existing place in Norwich and started bringing the bands in that we wanted to hear. And that developed into a whole other story which involves record labels that we run and you know yeah it depends how far you want to go down that rabbit hole where was the club in which club was it in norwich that you that you promoted a night at it was uh, a a very famous old club called the jacquard which uh, um at the time had, had turned into santana's night spot but we kind of Try to pull it, pull it back from there. Yeah, <laughs> nice. <laughs> so we would, uh, we were given Monday nights there because it was a completely dead night when nothing else was happening in Norwich, and we started pulling in bands from all over the country. Um, we had uh, people like uh, the Three Johns, the Nightingales, Robin Hitchcock. Um, we had the, I think, the second or third ever gig in Britain by the band called the Triffids from Australia. Yeah. Um, and oh, yeah, wow. and after a while, we'd had so many bands turn up and play. We said um, we should we should put a compilation album out. All the other clubs around the country are doing it, so we started a record label based on the you know with the name same name as the club, which was the unfortunately named Grunt Gruntagogo Club. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry yeah. about that. Yeah. <laughs> who, who was re- <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we put a compilation out, album out, uh, and uh, that was our first release. Um, a few a few weeks after that, uh, this band turned up from Holland to uh, support the Nightingales, and they were called Eaton Crop. Um, we really, really liked them. We were watching them in their sound check, and he said, "Do you know we really like this band?" why don't we put an album out by them? And so we talked to them and they said, well, funnily enough, we've, we've just recorded all the tracks for an album. Do you want to put it out? And we said, yep. And so that was our second release. And then 32 years later, we hadn't record, we hadn't released anything in 32 years. Um, the singer Irwin from Eaton Crop um, sent me a link to some demos that his daughter had recorded in her bedroom. And we listened to them and I said to my wife, this is good. Why don't we, why don't we release a couple of tracks? And so we put our third release in 32 years out. And it was, it was the first single by Pip Blom, who's, who's now, um, well, I mean, that single again, disappeared without a trace. We only, we only pressed a thousand of them. They're going to be collector's items of the future. But it then got picked up and I gave one to uh, Jeff Barrett, who runs Heavenly Records, when I bumped into him at a festival. And lo and behold, they're now signed to Heavenly, recorded an album in the studio next week to record their second album. And they've played Glastonbury. They've, They've ticked off all this stuff. And I'm so pleased to have been a part of it. And and I get to play bass now and again with Eaton Crop when they come over to Britain. Do you? Yeah. How, how come you get to play with them when they well, come over? They always come over. Uh, here we are back at Peel. Um, the weekend of the Peel Regenerated gigs, which is towards the end of October. Um, and their bass player has a young family and his daughter's birthday is around that same time. And he never wants to be away from her on her birthday. So I magnanimously agree to go on tour with them whenever they're over here. 
How brilliant. Um, that's... Is, that the only, is that your only musical project or are you playing elsewhere? No, I'm, uh, I'm actually in a band I've been with for getting on for 30 years. Um, a, <laughs> I'm in a pub band uh, playing rhythm and blues, obscure rhythm and blues and garagey stuff. Um, yeah, and that takes us back to feel goods because we are, I suppose, we're quite influenced by Dr. Feelgood and that early pub rock movement. But we, we kind of try and play stuff that a lot of other bands you'd see in a pubs would never touch with a barge pole. What's that band called? Uh, it's a band called Four D Jones. Okay, and and so so that's that's something you've done for a long time, and you and you're out doing gig. Do you rehearse much? Are you? Do you get together no, every week? no, no. We uh, we deliberately chose the sort of music we play because you don't need to rehearse too often. We we you know if we're doing gigs quite regularly, we very rarely have to rehearse except to get maybe a few new songs in the set. But yeah, we we don't rest on our laurels, and we've been doing it a while, and we're, apparently we're very good at it. But uh, yeah, it's you know it's it's really good fun because there's no expectation of fame or fortune. It kind of you can relax and just play whatever the hell you want what is it what is it about playing live what is it about that experience that um what does it bring to you dave cool it's it's never changed the the feeling has never changed where you get that slight sort of um butterflies in the tummy kind of thing where you think oh this is going well and you can tell it's going well by what people are doing in front of you if they're moving around and jumping up and down and singing the song back to you it's it's a universal thing i think with almost every musician if you've if you've stood in front of an audience that are enjoying it um there's there's no better feeling you know that you're doing what you really enjoy and other people are really enjoying listening to it yeah that makes so much sense <laughs> it really does and and so but along with doing live gigs with the band you're also uh a dj yeah yeah a very bizarre kind of dj where um i it started from a a chance encounter in an antique shop where um my wife and i were walking through and we saw a, a wind-up gramophone and we thought well we've got every other kind of format of musical technology in our house but we should have a wind-up gramophone as well so bought that sat outside playing it one day and my wife said you know if you had two of those you could play one record after the other without a break, like a DJ. And we just looked at each other and thought, oh, we've got to try it, haven't we? <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there my my journey as DJ 78 started. And I've met so many lovely people who were doing the same thing, who had the same idea. Um, and we we now have a thing called the Shellac Collective. And we, uh, we travel around to uh, festivals and uh, gigs all over the place and play scratchy old 78 rpm records and uh, people once they've got over the initial shock of the the strange sonic frequencies they're hearing and the the sound of, sort of frying bacon fat on top but um yeah it's it's a, it's a nice thing to do again no pressure you know you have, it is what it is it's really really enjoyable and i've got to um I've got to discover kind of retrospectively so much good music from the start of the 20th century onwards, which I would never have, have dreamed of listening to. But actually, there's some amazing stuff from the 1920s and 30s. Where are you, play, where are you DJing as DJ 78? Where is that taking you to play? Oh, all over the shop. Um, we Once we got the Shellac Collective together we were given a regular uh venue at uh festival and camp festival so we we would do those every year um in funnily enough the pig's big ballroom uh we we were able to name our venue on site and we named it after john peel's wife sheila who he affectionately called the pig because because of the way she laughs i i hasten to add and um yeah we again there's that there's that link back to the peel show because in his later shows he would play what he called the pig's big 78 where sheila would choose a 78 from their collection and he would play one out and that's kind of where i got the idea that 78s could be exciting again 
but I've, I mean, personally, I've been able to take my wind-up gramophones on the Eurostar and play over in Paris and do all sorts of weird and wacky stuff. What an amazing experience. I mean, on the, on the, the YouTube clip that you've got up there talking about um, the, some of the things that you've done, you, you've got to sort of draw a nice parallel between the kind of spirit of punk and some of the feeling that you get from listening to those, the early 78s that you're playing. And that was a, that was a lovely observation, I thought. Yeah, I mean, the, the attitude on the records is, is almost, you know, you, you, could, you can draw parallels with the outrage that people would have heard, would have felt listening to punk um, to those early ragtime and, and crazy rhythm and blues tracks where the sound was so out there. I mean, you, you can't imagine the shock of hearing your first Little Richard 78 i mean nothing would have you know it would have sounded like it was from another planet and how does that go across with a with a crowd at a, somewhere like festival surprisingly well I, I mean maybe it's the state the crowd are in by the time they wander into our tent <laughs> <laughs> but actually i mean we we've had we've had enormous crowds uh, there was a really wet festival one year on the isle of wight where it rained and rained constantly and on the Saturday night, I think it was, the tent that we were in was about the only tent left that still had power and a reasonably dry floor. And it got fuller and fuller. And Rob DeBank, who runs the festival, basically just kept coming in with crates of beers and lagers and saying, can you just do a bit more? And <laughs> I th I, we ended up doing like an 11 hour set because pe <laughs> people didn't, people didn't want to leave and they were having such a good time. And that's become a legendary set in our, in our uh, history. How oh, fantastic. I have to say, Dave, li listening to you talking for the last bit, well, best part of an hour, I've uh, uh, sort of brought to mind that idea and you as a photographer, I'm sure will uh, uh, go along with this, that, you you can't take a photograph unless you unless you go out with your camera and and it's it's like you can't write a song unless you you know make yourself open to ideas coming to you and that's sort of how a creative person embarks on their chosen creative activity am i making any sense here but it seems it seems to me that you lived your you you've lived your entire life in that way like being open to another experience or another idea and 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 my feeling from hearing you talk is is that is that tracks right back to tapping into the the power of music and, and how that's and what that gave to you and that you pursued a life in uh, in that way um does that make sense yeah i think it, there's that thing of you should always say yes if you're not sure about something say yes and then worry about it later um, so people often ask me if I can do something and I will tend to say yes and then I'll go and find out how to and that I mean that served me really well because it is, it's you know again it's given me some opportunities that I would never have had before and like you were saying it, um, that thing of music being kind of a, a doorway into so many other things as well I, I was looking I was trying to work out how many of my friends and acquaintances um have come to me through music and i would i would think it's probably about 90 percent um in some way shape or form every almost everything i've done has kind of linked back to music even the photography where i was taking pictures of bands in the 80s um it kind of introduced me to new people and then those people would talk about something else and then we'd suddenly discover oh yeah we could we could go and do that yeah. So, uh, yeah. Say yes, kids. Um, what do you think the <laughs> next thing that you're going to say yes to is going to be then, Dave? Have you got? Ooh, I don't know. I, I've, I mean, I've, um, I've just bought a new computer and it's got this thing called logic on it a music software. And so, um, I don't know. I've, I've, I, I was looking at it thinking, well, basically I've got a better studio on my laptop than we went into recording in the eighties. So, um, so I'm just going to, I'm going to see if I can become, I don't know, an anonymous secret, I don't know, underground dance music DJ that no one really knows who he is, but, uh, 
you know, there's there's like little bits of 78s in there and, you know, maybe some early 80 or mid 70s prog mixed in there as well who knows I'll, I'll mix it all into one thing and just see see what comes out well if you want to put, if you want to develop a, a, an alter ego or an alternate persona and come back onto the podcast with your strange <laughs> demo prog 78 demo oh, I could make up I could uh, make up a whole new off. backstory okay <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm right behind it. I'm with you. Let's just say yes to that now. Yeah, mate, yeah the next six episodes of uh, you know songs from a padded envelope are all, all my alter egos. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, don't worry, because that was that was a joke, by the way, if anyone's listening. Yeah. Or was it? Um I I I think we might be nearing the nearing the end of well, certainly the questions that I've got. Ben, is there anything else you wanted to run past? Dave, I've got one very sort of strange tangent question that kind of doesn't fit into this part of the conversation, but um, this happens. This has happened quite. It's quite a regular thing, isn't it? Ben's tangential quest, final question. Well, we could we could <laughs> we make it a special feature. Um, yeah, it's really just um, knowing knowing uh, we've got family members in Norwich and that, and uh, I know there's a very strong tradition of folk in the kind of folk music in the east of you know around norwich and around that um suffolk and norfolk and i wondered whether that was uh whether you think that's a significant thing in terms of how music follows through in that part of the country i don't know because uh, folk was a bit of a closed book to me when i was growing up um someone t- took me to a folk club above a pub once and i remember feeling so out of my depth um, almost to the point of it was almost like another culture um, and as I was growing up I, I, I almost made the um, I almost made it a point of avoiding folk music um, saying that now maybe it's because I'm a, that few years older I now listen to an awful lot of folk and appreciate it much more uh, these days to the point of um, my wife and I go up to Northumbria every year to the Unthanks singing weekend and join in being taught songs by the Unthanks, uh, who are a fantastic Northumbrian family folk group in the old tradition. Um, also, one of the things I said yes to um, a year or so ago, someone asked if I could uh, run tech for a, a show in a theatre. And I said, yeah, who's it for? And they said it's this band called the Young'uns. And they're a a three-piece uh, a cappella folk band, but they've written this song about a guy who goes off to fight in the Spanish Civil War from uh, from their neck of the woods. And I ended up going on tour with them and teching that show, uh, running QLab queues for video and audio um, at places like the Purcell Rooms on the South Bank, um, which I'd never done before. I, I think I had, I had half an hour or something to to warm up one night and then I was on and uh yeah I said yes to that I'm really glad I did because it was a superb show but yeah to go back to your question Ben sorry your tangential question um I I don't know about that because it wasn't a music that ever fed into a lot of the stuff we were doing although it was always there because a lot of the festivals I went to when I was growing up were basically hippie festivals and things like the Ling Fairy Fair, and there was a there was a group of festivals that used to happen around East Anglia, around Norfolk and Suffolk, which were basically a bunch of hippies turning up, putting tents up, and getting a bit new agey for a weekend. Um, so yeah, I, it, it was there. It was on. It was on the radar, but it wasn't something that I remember having a, a distinct impression on me, leaving a distinct impression on me dave thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and sharing your many many fantastic stories it's been such a joy to listen to you and and to speak with you um i'm looking forward to your alter egos returning um for a special six six part series um all with very different styles of music to share with us <laughs> oh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you steve and thank you ben uh, it's been a pleasure listening to you, Dave. It really has. And we, in traditional style for our podcast, could we finish with you 
queuing up the song that we're going to hear now, please, Dave. Absolutely. So uh, taking you way back to January the 23rd, 1981, uh, at White House Sound in Easton near Norwich, this is uh, the, you know, toe-tapping sound of uh, Falling Men with their number Denigration of Beauty. Awesome. Thank you, Dave. Songs from a Padded Envelope is presented, produced and edited by Steve Swindon and Van Clay. Music is by state-sponsored Jukebox. Artwork is by Matt Canning. Songs from a Padded Envelope is a Hidden Hive production. <laughs>